With that said, questions, thoughts, complaints? Thank you. For those of you listening, that was a word of commendation of the excellency of the, okay. No. Um, I, I, if, while you guys think I got something I want to go further with, I was talking at the end of the message about the danger of approaching thankfulness the wrong way. And uh, I want to expound upon that a little bit. I just didn't have time. I mean, it wasn't crucial in the message. But uh, if those of you who've read any of John Piper's work, this is one of the big um, things he's pushing back against. He grew up in an era in the church, at least where he was at, where um, there was this sort of debtor's ethic. It went something like, God has done all this for you. Can't you now do something for him? So a lot of Christian service was motivated that way. God sent his son can't you be thankful enough to help out Nawana? God sent his son, can't you be, help out with the, you know, the slides or whatever? And there's this sort of repayment ethic. Um, you're a debtor to grace. And there's a truth there we're debtors to grace, but there's just no way to try to pay God back. And so he's pushing back against that, and we can view thankfulness and praise that way. I, what it looks like is my heart has no joy, my heart has no thankfulness, but apparently that's what Christians are supposed to do. And after all, he did send his son, so I guess I could sing these songs that bore me for him. And that's, and I just want to read um, a paragraph or two that Piper said on that um, from his book, um, Future Grace. There's an impulse in the fallen human heart, in all our hearts, to forget that gratitude is and must be a spontaneous response of joy to receiving something. When we forget this, what happens is that gratitude starts to be misused and distorted as an impulse to pay for the very thing that came to us freely. This terrible moment is the birthplace of the, quote, debtor's ethic, unquote. The debtor's ethic says, because you've done something good for me, I feel indebted to do something good for you. This impulse is not what gratitude was designed to produce. God meant gratitude to be a spontaneous expression of pleasure in the gift and the goodwill of another. He did not mean it to be an impulse to return favors. If gratitude is twisted into a sense of debt, it gives birth to the debtor's ethic, and the effect is to nullify grace. So that's what we want to avoid, which is where I was trying to get at, is Jesus sees this man's thankfulness and is praising God, as an evidence of faith. So if we're not praising and thanking God, we are lacking some level of faith. If we skip and don't deal with that and just paste on some praise that we make ourselves do, the real problem of faith is never addressed. Whereas if faith is working the way it should, gratitude and praise well up. Um, you, you see kids, when they open up presents at Christmas, they don't have to work at it to be thankful. Now maybe for the underwear or something, but when they get something they want, Praise, joy, rejoicing, it just happens naturally. Again, this is the way God designed us. He made us. So a lack of thankfulness and praise is a diagnostic tool to indicate something spiritually is up. The, 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 the solution is not, okay, fake it till you make it, but rather, what am I not seeing? What am I not believing? What am I not looking at that I'm not finding joy and thankfulness in my heart and dealing with the root issue? Does that make any questions that make sense? Um, I, I've just seen my fair share of sort of happy, clappy Christianity where the, the, there's sort of this unspoken notion that anything other than how are you doing wonderful is somehow letting the team down. 
because Jesus died for us. How can I bother to complain? You read the Psalms, two-thirds of the Psalms contain lament in them and, and, and crying out of groaning and hell. Like, we can be realistic when we're discouraged, um, and that's, that's fine. But our praise needs to be authentic. Now, there needs to be praise, but it needs to be authentic. Okay, that's, yes. Oh, Mike Evans. I, what you were speaking of there, it, in my mind, it kind of went to penance. I mean, mm-hmm. obviously, penance is, is how man thinks. That's how, why man in, created penance in, in the mm. religious. But we're, so what, I think what you're saying is God's calling us to think on a higher, a higher level to get beyond those, those things that we were born with that keep us down right. to go. I'll, I'll, absolutely. Let me illustrate that with another example. You'll find John Piper is probably the, the, the living author who's most hitting this note and making this distinction, and it's really helpful. Others before him have, but today living, I think he's probably the preeminent guy doing it, but he uses this example, and you think about a husband on his anniversary, 10th anniversary, shows up at the door, dozen roses, box of chocolates, and... Um, the wife says, oh, dear, you, you didn't need to. Why, why did you do this? Which of the two following answers gives glory to the wife, and which of the two answers do you think would fill her heart with joy and pleasure? Answer number one. Well, you're my wife, and I promise to care for you, and I promise to honor and love you, and in our culture, uh, this is the way, the appropriate response. This is what is obligated to me, and I, I will do it. I told you I'd do it, and I will do it. And so I went online, and I figured out what is the appropriate 10th anniversary um, expression, and I figured I'd do the best. So I figured what was the, the fullest or the best. And it was said right there on the Wikipedia site, box of chocolates, dozen red flowers, and I want you to know that I keep my word, and I do my duty, and, I, and so here you are. That's one answer. Um, answer number two. I just love you so much, and I just love seeing you happy, and I just want to give you flowers. Which, which one of those two answers makes the wife look wonderful and delightful and glorious? And which one of those two answers do you think pleases her more? Okay, why do you worship God? Well, because he did all this stuff for me, and we read the Bible, and Christians are supposed to. If we're not worshiping and praising God, something's wrong. So I, am so, I, I, I see that God did for me, and I'm, I'm certainly willing to do my part. If my part as a Christian means I show up on Sunday and I praise him, that's what I'll do. Or, I can't not praise God. When I think of his mercies and his graces, when I think of what he's done for me, how, how can my tongue not overflow in joy and praise? Which of those two makes God look more wonderful and glorious? Which one do you think pleases him? It's the same metaphor. So praise of all things and gratitude of all things must be authentic and spontaneous. Um, which isn't to say... Don't worry about it because if you fake it, it's wrong. But rather, if we recognize thanklessness, if we recognize um, joylessness, and we recognize ingratitude in our hearts, dig deeper to get to the root of what's going on. Something else we are delighting in. You will delight in something. Um, We're made to worship. We're made to find joy and glory in things. And so one possibility is I'm delighting in the wrong things. You know, I'm getting really excited about X, my team's progress to the playoffs, or I'm getting really excited about the prospects of promotion at my job, or I'm getting really excited about this prospect of a new child, or whatever you want to, there can all be good things, there can all be bad things, but make no mistake, something is going to fill you with delight, something is going to fill you with joy, 
Um, and and so we we need to go deeper than simply okay, just make yourself sing, make yourself praise God, even though you don't feel like it. Um, yeah, and, and other and it quickly becomes as you said penance. Otherwise, and that's exactly do say this many hail marys, say this many of the paternostras, um, go up go up the steps on your knees, thanking God. And it gets measured out. And I guarantee you, whatever's going on in the hearts of the people doing that is not joy and thanks. It's what, duty. What, what, came, what came to me when you started talking about that yeah. was, it seemed like the, you know, we, we, we all realized which one was from the heart. Yeah. And the other one was from the mind. Yeah. So your, your reasoning, which brings in all the things that worldly, if you come from the heart, then you're actually feeling what you've been, what the Lord's put in you. And it, I was seeing the note. The difference between both of those was one was from the mind, and one was from the heart. Right. Is there any is there any scripture that talks about the Lord? It tells us how we should come from the heart in certain instances, and come from the. Is there any time we're supposed to use our brain and not our heart? Well, I think the two work together. We're whole people. Mm-hmm. So, like, here's here's how it works with me, Mike. If I notice ingratitude, coveting, discontent in my heart, that my thought process when I'm thinking rightly on a good day goes something like this. Wow, I really, uh, I'm, I'm off base here. My heart has drifted from its first love. My mind isn't where it ought to be. Okay, I'm discontent. I'm, I'm grumbling. I'm, uh, you know, all those things. I, I need to go and uh, go, to, go to Lamentations. Go to Lamentations chapter three. Mike read from Lamentations this morning. I'll read the passage Mike read this morning. Um, and in Lamentations 3, I, I think we see what the mind can do. The mind has a role to play in this, and the heart does as well. Lamentations is right after the big prophet Jeremiah. Um, so let me go there, Lamentations 3. And this is a, a pattern that I see in Scripture a lot. Here's the short answer, then I'll try to show you in the Bible. When my heart is filled with worries, my heart is filled with fear and unhappiness and coveting and discontent, what I need to do is take some time with my mind and meditate on God's goodness. I need to say, you know, Jeremy needs this. Jeremy needs to turn the TV off, put the smartphone down, and take 10 minutes and think through God's blessings in my life. That's what I need to do. The result of that mental work should be rising joy and confidence in God. So my mind can make, heart, look at this. Don't look away. Look at God's goodness. And then the heart needs to respond. But the mind can clear the table of other distractions. The mind can say, no, by golly, we are going to think about God's goodness. Now here, this is, I can show you this in at least two places in the Bible. In Lamentations 3 is one of the most remarkable ones. Because what you're going to see in Lamentations 3 is somebody completely consumed with lament on a dime, as it were, turn into praise. And I want you to notice what the, the pivot is. So we're going to start in Lamentations 3 and just go. The pivot, the pivot is verse 21. I am the man who has seen affliction. And what Jeremiah is doing is he's, he's watching. Lamentations is kind of a commentary on the sacking and the fall of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, and the deportation of all the people. And Jeremiah is watching, as it were, the, the, the nation of Israel dissolve. The, the, the th- seed of David destroyed. The temple where God's glory dwelled, eradicated, and the people being taken off into slavery, and he is broken. I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven me 
and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. Now bear in mind, this is inerrant scripture. One of the things I love about the Bible is how real it is, how visceral it is when talking about grief and sorrow. The Bible, you can, you can be filled with the Spirit and be pouring out your heart like this. What matters is you get through to the end of the chapter and you make it through the pivot in 21. Okay. Surely against me he turns his hand the whole day. Verse 4. He has made my flesh and skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me out so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. Though I cry and call for help, he shuts out my prayer. You ever felt that God isn't listening? Jeremiah did. And in inerrant scripture, he poured out that concern to God. He has blocked my ways with blocks of stones. He has made my paths crooked. He is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turns aside my steps and tore, tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. You know, Jeremiah, tell us what this God you serve, Jeremiah. Well, he's kind of like a bear who hides from me. And when I ever have the timidity to get up and leave my house and step outside, he pounces on me and tears me to pieces. That's what God's like. That's what verse 10 says. He bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrows. God, God's kind of like a sadistic archer who ties me up to a pole and shoots my kidneys and liver with arrows. He drove into my kidneys the arrows of his liver. I've become the laughingstock of all the people, the object of their taunts all the day long. He has filled me with bitterness and he has sated me with wormwood. So there's some very real, very honest confessions of discouragement and, and sorrow that I, I am thankful are in Scripture. You, you, can, you can think this and be okay. Just don't stop here. Keep going. He has made my teeth grind on gravel. He made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind. Therefore, I have hope. And now what Jeremiah does is he's going to recount and bring his mind to think about these things that are true, and praise is going to well up. He's going to go from God's a bear who tears me to pieces, God's an archer who ties me up and shoots me, to the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait to him, for the soul who seeks him. Now he's going to start to reinterpret his suffering. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man to bear the yoke of his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid upon him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let, his, let him give his cheek to the one who strikes, and let him be filled with insults. For the Lord will not cast off forever. But though he caused grief, he will have compassion. So before, God's walled me up. He's shut my prayers out, and I'm just sitting here languishing. Now, what's the new interpretation? You know, it, it's good for me to sit and wait. It's good for me to wait on God, because he won't make me wait forever. He may, he may not be answering now, but he will return. 
the Lord will not cast off forever. But though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men to crush underfoot all the prisoners of the earth to deny man justice in the presence of the Lord to subvert a man in his lawsuit. The Lord does not approve. Who has spoken and it come to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Why should a living man complain, a man, about the punishment of his sins? Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Let us lift our hearts and hands to God in heaven. We have transgressed and rebelled, and you have not forgiven. Now, that is a radically, two radically different ways to deal with grief. And the key in Lamentations 3 I'm going to stop and recall these things to mind, and therefore I have hope. Go to Psalm 77. The exact same progression takes place in Psalm 77. Um, And again, I am thankful for the first half of these passages because I'll meet people who are... Most Christians I know would feel ashamed, embarrassed, to confess that they're thinking the things the psalmist says in Psalm 77. Yet I think from time to time, these are things all of us wrestle with, okay? Psalm 77. (coughs) Excuse me. I cry aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I groan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. You hold my eyelids open. I'm so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years of long ago. I said, let me remember my song of the night. Let me meditate in my heart. And then my spirit made a diligent search. Then he asked five questions. Who here would feel safe in the church to confess to these questions and thinking these thoughts? One, verse seven. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? You know, I'm just, I'm really struggling with wondering whether... God seems to have been so hard in his dealings with me in the last few years that is he ever going to be gracious again? Two, verse eight. Has his steadfast love forever ceased? I I know God used to be good and loving and kind, but it just seems like he's changed. You know? Um, I I know. I know he did all that good stuff in the past, but honestly, it, it, it seems like God's different now. Are his promises at an end for all time? God a liar? Is God breaking his word now? Can he be trusted? I'm not so sure. That's what the psalmist is is asking. He's not declaring it. He's not saying God is a liar. He's just saying, this is what's going on in my heart, man. Thank you very much. Adam, mute me for a second. All right, we're back. Okay, thank you. So that's what the psalmist is asking, okay? Um, and then verse number, number five and verse nine, has he in anger shut up his compassion? Has his anger obliterated his compassion? Okay, that's what he's wrestling with. That's what he's, we don't know what's causing this. But that's what he's wrestling with. Then I said, I will appeal to the years, to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. Now look at 11 and 12. Here's the pivot. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. 
Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonder. Like, where does this come from? A minute ago, he was, can God be trusted? I was praising God. What, what was the pivot? The pivot was, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. And if you keep reading Psalm 77, it's clear the specific mighty deed he's going to is the exodus, the, the, specifically the parting of the Red Sea. Um, Look at verse 16. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed in every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings led the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters. Yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. So in effect, what this person did, this psalmist did, as he's wrestling with all of these um, doubts, you know what? I need to think about God's goodness and mighty deeds. And he goes back and he spends some time reading and thinking about the exodus from Egypt. And he's seeing how faithful God is. And he's seeing how trustworthy God is. And, even, and there's a lot of waiting there. You know, the people cry out to God and it's not for a generation that they get a deliverer because they cry out and an exodus says the Lord saw and he heard and he felt compassion. And then Moses is born. But it's not till 40 years later and then 40 years, actually 80 years later, Moses is 40 when he first tries to deliver the people and the Israelites tell him to get lost. And he goes out to Midian and he, and he herds sheep and goats for 40 more years. And then he comes back. So 80 years after the people cried out for God for deliverance, Moses returns to deliver them. I'm sure during those 80 years, has God forget? Has God broken his word? Has he stopped to be compassionate? But then God delivers them and they leave Egypt and their back gets up to the Red Sea and the, the army's coming in and, and it looks hopeless and then God makes an amazing miraculous escape route and the people walk through a parted sea because God's the God who works wonders and he can make water do what water doesn't do and he's working through all that and yeah I can trust this God yeah this God's worthy of praise this is a good God. And that's where he goes. And that's, so that's the role the mind can have, back to your, your, on how to generate praise and thankfulness. I need to go think about who God is and what he's done. This is one of the reasons why us sharing our thankfulness to God helps build each other up. If I'm having a bad day, if, you know, I, I kicked the dog on my way to church, I don't even have a dog, you know, that type of day, and and you're grumbling, and the kids are being fractious, and I come here, and then I talk to somebody, and I talked to somebody this morning at coffee, and they just told me about God's faithfulness in their life. And you know what that does to me? Oh, yeah, that is what God's like, isn't it? God is awesome like that, isn't he? Oh, yeah. And that's, you know, that's why the baptismal testimonies, when we have baptism, people give their testimonies, why it's so encouraging, because what are, what, what are they doing? They're reminding us who God is. They're giving us specific, concrete examples of his faithfulness, of his goodness, of his kindness, of his mercy. And as we see them, what do we do? We get encouraged. So yeah, if you're not thankful, if you're, if you're grumbling, if you're discontent, you need to go spend some time thinking about remembering who God is. And then, authentically and really, the Spirit should work some amount of joy, even in the midst of the trial. It's not that all of a sudden everything's wonderful, but what Paul speaks of, outwardly perishing but inwardly being renewed should be taking place, something like that. So I think that's the role of um, the mind and the heart in cultivating joy. Um, the mind can say, you know what, we're going to look at God's goodness and we're going to look at his mercy until we start to feel some joy. Sort of like Jacob wrestling with the angel, you know, bless me, we're not going to let go. I'm not getting up from here until I see something glorious.
God, show me something glorious. Open my eyes, behold wondrous things in your word. I can't make myself see beauty in God's word, but I can keep sitting and reading and asking God till I do. Yeah, that's, as I think, the relationship. Anyone, anyone want to, any further questions or thoughts with that or something altogether different? Microphone. So as adults, we can read this and understand this, but um, can you just shed a little light on how you would help children understand thankfulness and teach children thankfulness other than prayer? I might have some bad examples. <laughs> yes. Um, well, one of the simple things. So one of the traditions we're trying to start with our family, it's got a limping start, but we did it this year, is... Uh, Thanksgiving, sit around the table, and um, what are you thankful for? My mom gave me, you, you, I don't know if you know that I remember this, Mom, but uh, she encouraged me to pray. Someone told you this. It was one of those sideways exhortations. You know, you know, I was once told that I should pray and be thankful as though anything that I wasn't thankful for, I wouldn't have the next day. I'm, I'm totally twisting it, but it was something like that, wasn't it, Mom? Yeah. Well, that stuck with me. Uh, but... When, you know, so I'll just talk to my kids and ask them questions. Sort of, you know, Jesus did this Socratically. So this happens a lot. You know, a kid, um, Zadik, we'll play board games. And Zadik's a little too young for board games. He, he doesn't have the attention span for them. So we may let him um, play with an iPod for 10 minutes or watch something on TV. And then he'll be, he'll be sad because he's going to bed. He's younger than Abner and Sophie. And he'll, you know, this isn't fair. And he'll be in bed and he'll be pouting. And we'll just, hey, Zadik, tell me about what your day. I'm just, did you do this? Yeah, I did this. Did you do this? Yeah, I did this. You know, Zadok, you've got all these things you'd be thankful for, and your heart, my heart does the same thing, is wanting you to focus on the one thing you couldn't have. I mean, it's really Genesis 3 all over again, right? Here's all the good things you have, but I'm just fixated on the one thing I don't have, which is I don't want to go to bed. And just, you look, Zadok, you've got a choice. You can be miserable, and you can listen to your heart. You can be miserable. Um, and here's what's going to happen if you do that. You're, you're going to lose joy. And eventually, when you complain enough, you're going to get disciplined. Um, or you could say, yeah, I, I, know I, I know I don't want to go to bed. I know one of the things I got tonight I didn't want. But I got all these other things I did want, and I'm going to try to be thankful for that. And you can ask God to help you do that, and you're going to get blessed. You know? um, which, which, now, the problem is you ask them that question, they know the answer they're supposed to give. I want to do the other one. But at least you're trying to help them come at it. Now, maybe the first five, ten times you say that, they just give you the answer you want. But hopefully, just like even the little thing my mom said that stuck with me, you're giving the spirit ammo or seed, it's probably a more biblical metaphor, um, to work with in his time in, in their hearts. So I'm trying to, here's how you should respond. You should, you should have a certain amount of distrust for your heart. Your heart and my heart is wicked. So just because we're tempted to feel some way doesn't mean we should automatically just embrace it. Um, you should have a certain amount of distrust. I, what was the one that was the stupidest? This was the stupidest one. It was so easy to help show the kid how stupid it was. They wanted to read two stories. Will you read me two stories tonight? No, you can have one story. Then I don't want any story at all. But kids do that, right? Yeah, Because um, adults never do anything like that. Um, and, and just say, you know, that's just crazy. <laughs> do you see how crazy your heart is? It's just wicked. What's better, one story or no story? I want two stories. Okay, two stories is better yet, fair enough, but between one story and no story, what's better? They know it's a trap. So. What's better, one cookie or no cookie? You're going to give me a cookie? Just what's better? One, one story. Okay. Your heart is telling you it's better to have no story 
than one story because you can't have two stories. Yeah. My, microphone, this is, this is the stuff. Give, no, no, give the man the microphone. This is good stuff, Mike. But, but uh, Mark Sullivan wants to, uh, wants to hear it. I got you. So it sounds like you're, you're pretty much expanding the picture of their vision so they can yeah. see, see more than what their, their mind and heart is, is set on. Yeah. And all, all you're trying to do, Mike, go to Psalm 42. All you're trying to do is train them to do the very thing David models for us. We need to talk. We need to ultimately become self-counselors. We need to talk to ourselves, not in a weird way, but, but uh, in a faithful biblical way. David is discouraged. Psalm 42 and 43, which I think are one psalm, follow this pattern, lament, response. And the response takes the form of David talking to his soul. I mean, it's sort of odd. You picture David's soul, you're paying attention, and he's talking to himself. And he's counseling himself. And so, 42, as the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night while they say all along to me, where is your God? These things, okay, these things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I'd go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. So, and then his response is in five. So turn that into kid language. The kids are mean to me. And I, and I am sad that it's not the days when we were with our friends going to church. That's kind of what David's saying, right? The people mock me. They say, where is my God? And I remember when I would go in the throng and lead procession. Those days are not where I'm at now. I remember being with God's people, praising God. And now that's not where I'm at. Where I'm at is people making fun of me. Okay. So your kid's sad. What does David say to himself? He says the same thing three times in verse 5, in verse 11, and in 43, 5. Why are you downcast, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise in my salvation of my God, which is really simple. It won't always be this bad soul. It may not be fun now, but in the future I will praise God. Like That's the simplicity of his answer. Is what you're experiencing right now isn't reality for all time, forever, world without end, amen. It, things will change. Yeah, people are making fun of you now, and then you were with God and his people. In the future it will be different. So hope in God, soul. I mean, because depression, discouragement has a way of trying to pronounce that the way things are now is the way they'll always be. If today's a bad day, all of life will be a bad day. It'll never change. There's no hope. And so David simply reminds himself of that. And then he goes into round two. Why are you downcast within me? Therefore, my soul is downcast within me, the end of verse five. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, Mount Mazar, deep calls the deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your ways have gone over me. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love. At night his song is with me. And he's already starting to fight back some. He's even in my, either he's either physically or metaphorically remote. So either he really is in the mountains away from God's people and just missing that. Or he's describing a figurative, his, his, his isolation not sure which one it is, because it's hard to see how in the mountains he has enemies mocking him, saying, where is your God? But maybe he does. Um, As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all day long, where is your God? So that really seems to be the thing that's bugging him the most. Is his en- God seems to not be answering. He's separated somehow from God's people, and his enemies are saying, <laughs> your God won't save you now, David. And it's really bumming him out. Verse 11, why are you downcast, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. 
Then 43, which I think is the same psalm. The divisions and the, the numbers were put in hundreds of years, hundreds of years later. Um, these divisions weren't until like the 6th century, I think. Um, so 43, vindicate me, O God, defend my cause against an ungodly people. For, see, it's the same thing. People who are ungodly are mocking him. He wants vindication. Deliver me from the unjust man. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Look at verse 9 of 42. Why have you forgotten me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? 42.9. Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? If 43 is not part of 42, it's the sequel. Um, Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill, to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with a lyre, O God my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. I, I would expect the, the daily, day-to-day walk of Christians is stuff like that. I'm catching myself being discouraged, and I need to speak, okay, hope in God, soul. You know, and reminding myself of truth. What's true? I mean, this is, this is pastoral counseling isn't some amazing magic science. It's frequently just the things we need, which is what other things are true? My enemies are taunting him. Yes, that's true. What else is true? Is there a good God who's in control? Yeah, there is. Has he made promises to you? Yes, he has. Can we look at those two? Is there anything to put some hope in here? Um, David's solution is not... No, it's not as bad as you think your enemies aren't really making fun of you. He's very real about the problem. He's just reminding himself of other things. Um, and frequently, that's, that's where we're at, is we so fixate on the thing we don't like that we lose sight of all the things that are good. And so David's reminding himself about God's grace and telling himself to take hope in it. So back to your question, that's, you start teaching that to kids because we all need to do it even as adults. And hopefully at some point, it starts happening. <laughs> I can't make it happen, but I can say to them, I mean, it's kind of the two paths. Here's one path you can walk down. You can grumble and complain, and you're to get disciplined because I'm going to tell you to go to bed, and you're going to be crying in bed and bothering your brothers and sisters and have to deal with that. Or you can take this other path that's going to lead to blessing. Which one do you want to do? Um, and what they initially do simply because they want to avoid my wrath, hopefully they will do... Um, sorry, I've been listening to D.A. Carson. He says wrath too much lately, sorry. Um, and they, hopefully they'll begin to do authentically, naturally. Um, so that's, that's yeah, any further follow-ups with that or anything else with that? Oh, Naomi. I have a friend who um, I've mentioned before is Catholic um, or was Catholic. And yep. she's right now really struggling and she... I don't know how to describe it. She's just really in despair right now. And it's very much about things that are temporal and of this world. Mm. And But she's angry at God because of it. And I've, right. I've talked to her and I sort of realized that from what she said, she said she was angry at God and didn't really want anything to do with him. Um, but she thinks Jesus is okay, apparently. So... <laughs> But I was just wondering, is there a way to encourage her, um, even though she's very much angry at God, like, is there a way to encourage her? Because there's no way out of her situation. I, I don't see a way out of her situation, and she doesn't see a way out of her situation. But 
I'm realizing that it's because she needs God, and she needs God to lead her out, but right now she thinks God is this horrible person who casts shame on her and makes her feel small and like a person that, you know, is, I mean, kind of what we are, but at the same time, she doesn't see any hope in that and doesn't see any, like, she doesn't see any possibility of ever being happy, I don't know. No, that's, that's tough. That's tough, Naomi, because I'm guessing, as we've talked about, one of the things Catholicism does is rather than curing shame and guilt with forgiveness, they put a Band-Aid over it and prey upon it to, to, to enslave people into the whole sacerdotal system of, of the sacraments and stuff. And so when somebody rebels against that, you know, I've had enough of this constant shame and penance, I've had enough of this God who constantly, all he does is make me feel unworthy and bad, you're in a difficult place <laughs> because the beginning of the gospel has got to be you're unworthy and bad. But we actually have a cure. We don't, just, we don't just have treatment for the symptoms. We actually have an entire, you can be made well. And whereas Catholicism is primarily just, you can you know, m- mitigate the symptoms. We can dole you out another measure of grace that'll get you through till tomorrow. You'll need some more tomorrow. Come back. Stay tuned. You know. So it is tough because her anger at God ultimately is founded upon an assumption that she deserves better than she's gotten, which we're all inclined to think. It's what Adam and Eve thought in the garden. Oh, we deserve to eat from this tree too. We deserve to be like God. And it's wrong. But it, in our culture in particular, where we've got a culture that's so self-entitled, it takes real deep roots. You throw on top of that the, um, the, uh, the bad experience with Catholicism, that's going to be a hard corner for her to round. She's likely feeling like she escaped the shame and guilt complex. And so she, it's likely she'll have her, um, um, her defenses up and be very resistant to the notion that, no, really God has done you no wrong. But as long as she sits on the throne and God is beholding to her, the roles are reversed. So she's evaluating what God has done in her life, and she is disapproving of it. God has not done what he ought to do by me. He's not been fair to me. He's not given me what I deserve. He's not given me what I want. He's given me a hard life. He's given me difficulty. Um, therefore, I don't like him. That's the logic. You got to reverse the situation where I'm beholding to him and not him to me. So practically, what do you do? You try to love her and encourage her. Her suffering is real suffering, even if it's... Um, even if it's avoidable suffering, you can, you can sympathize with that. Her anguish is real anguish. Her sorrow is real sorrow, and you can enter that, and you can, you can um, sure you care for her. But ultimately, I'd ask her questions, trying to help her get to what wrong has God done you? Well, you know, get her to say it. And like I said, be patient, because she will likely be very defensive about that. But ultimately, that's, there, there is going to be no salvation until she sees herself as a sinner, in need of grace. As long as God owes her, and she's operating under that, I mean, maybe you could even help her see she's just traded one debt system with God for another debt system with God. Now God owes her and is obligated to her, and he's letting her down and not doing what she, I don't know. Be, ask God for wisdom and grace, but those would be my off-the-cuff thoughts. But I just try to be a friend, try to love her and ask her questions. Try to unpack as clearly what she thinks, why she thinks it. But until the, the shift from Lamentations 3 takes place, what right has any man to complain about it, the punishment of his sins? Till that thought pops into her head, 
you're not going to make much progress. That that would be my initial thoughts. Go. She does also think that Catholicism, when done right, is good, mm. which, of course, I would disagree with. But <laughs> <laughs> and she doesn't feel like she's actually escaped the shame. Like mm. she just tries to shove it away and mm. put it off and avoid it. And she says that in so many years, maybe she'll go back to mm. God and deal with God and. Then, then maybe you could co-opt that. Um, take Catholicism when done right is good to Jesus is beautiful. Jesus is good. You know, I think there are a lot of people, I hate God but love Jesus. Um, that sounds to me like a lot of liberal Christianity um, is I hate God but love Jesus. And maybe you could even, let's go see what Jesus says. Let's go take a look at Jesus. If you found Jesus attractive, you found him appealing, let's go. And then you can get the tough stuff and the good stuff from Jesus. And if anything that directs her to the Bible is good. Um, and so if you say, hey, it looks like you caught a, cute, a few beautiful glimpses of Jesus, I'd, I'd work with that. And let's go see what he has to say. Let's see if he has any help to give. Let's see if he has any encouragement to offer. And if you get her in the text, you're, you're putting the, the power of God to salvation in front of her eyes. You're again giving the spirit the, uh, the ammunition to, to work mightily. He's, the spirits, what is this? This weapon of choice is the text of the Bible, and so um, that would be the other best thing you do. If you can in any way direct her back there, talking about Jesus, um, that would be good. And if she has any, you know, she hates all the other stuff, but likes Jesus, I'd work with it. Work whatever you got. Work with that. Um, would be my thought. Other thoughts, questions. Ten minutes to go. Need to hawk the mic today, but just a lot of things coming into mind. Um, what she brought up is comes I come into contact with it a lot that mm. the Catholics have always been in the Catholic Church. They believe that the other churches that believe in Jesus are exactly the same. There's nothing different. They don't see a parallel or a, a I mean they they don't see any differences. So it's hard to get them to look at. At real Christianity before man was, you know, we've learned the last four weeks that, you know, the, the Catholic religion has lost its way. Mm. The people within the Catholic religion, not that some of them won't be saved, but it's lost its way. The people within the religion do not realize this at all. Mm. Um, and they actually, the brainwash by 12 or 15 is pretty much instilled to the point where it's hard to even discuss them. I right. met, I met a, well, my wife now, when I met her, her dad, the first thing he said to me was, you know, not treat my wife, you know, my daughter well. And the first thing he said is, don't take her away from the Catholic Church. That was his number one concern. Huh. I didn't. Um, she did it on her own three years later because right. she started to come to church with me. And when you start seeing, I guess, so I, let me put this into a question. I think we're all going to struggle with this. We run it, and we just kind of ignore it. We run into Catholics. We just say, "Okay, fine. You believe in Jesus? We'll let it go." I, I, that's what I've always done. I don't even try to preach to them or anything. I just—I mean, I don't know what to do because they're, the differences are are so deep that it's hard to explain. Uh, you don't—you can't tell someone you've been brainwashed. They, they're right, right there. You got an argument. Well, is there—is there a verse or two within the, the question? Real quick, is there a verse or two within the Bible that you could point them to, to maybe get their own heart and mind thinking? I, I would take them to any of the Gospels. I would take them there first and foremost. The the inroads I made with my own father, who I, I've described was a very religious, nominal Catholic 
meaning he was very committed to his nominal Catholicism. What, what I mean, in other words, he he didn't. Most Catholics don't understand the full range of Catholic teaching. Um, but you know, he, he basically what you said. I'm trusting the priest. The priest is a professional, and he tells me I'm okay with God. Okay. I'll describe my dad as someone who had his faith in a church that had his, he thought had his faith in Jesus. And so I didn't need to take down Rome. I didn't need to deconstruct Roman Catholicism. It's your experience. We started reading the Bible. Um, and in my case, we were reading John 3, where Jesus said, you must be born again. And I'd got my dad to agree that push come to shove, Scripture trumps everything. Now, he was very cautious with that. He said, if the Scripture was clear... There was no ambiguity, because he even recognized that the councils contradicted themselves, and they changed. So the second he agreed, gave me that, we started reading John 3, where Jesus says, you must be born again. And he had never heard of that. He'd never seen that. And he could not deny it seemed pretty important. <laughs> and that was the conversation we had. Jesus says, you must be born again to enter the kingdom of heaven. Do you think you have been born again? Do you know what that is? I don't know what that is. Okay, we've got something we need to study, and now that... You know, it's, so for me, that was the inroad was was there, and um, and that's what we were talking through when he made a profession of faith in the last days of his life. Um, but I would I would just get people to read the Bible, like Luther said, the Word does it. That was your experience. You got to read in the Bible, um, and I, the Bible is so clear on these major things. I mean, we can find things that are complex and difficult, but the gospel and who Jesus is and. Is man is it's so clear on those points. Just reading it um, is is going to help clarify things, you know. And there's a reason why Rome for so long resisted putting it in the vernacular in the common language was because I think they knew what was going to happen. So that'd be my advice: just get him in the text. It'd be the same thing, Naomi. Any way you can get her to the Bible, get her to the Bible. Get him in the Bible, reading the Bible, especially the Gospels. Ron, Ron wants to add something. I think um, you're exactly right. I've used uh, the, what's called the Roman Road, mm. and um, you can even Google it. And um, if you look through the, the verses there, and you find it in the Catholic Bible, because <laughs> I've done it with people in the Catholic Bible, and um, it really, once you do it in their Bible, it's hard for them to uh, you know, contradict it because you show it right there. When Romans is most, it depends on what, what errors you're trying to correct. With your friend, I think the Gospels were the place to go. Get them to see Jesus and all of his glory and beauty and what he says. In, in getting to a forgiveness apart from all of these things and rites and rituals, Romans is going to be the clearest, especially three and four, the second half of three and four. I mean, Paul is emphatic. I mean, I'm going back to, sadly, Pastor Daniel's message wasn't recorded, but he, he hit this hard when Paul makes the point about Abraham, was Abraham justified? Was he declared righteous before or after he was circumcised? Before. Now Abraham goes on to prove he has faith. He offers up Isaac, and he, he, he does all these things to show he has faith, but God declared him just before he did any of it. Now that's going to be a big blow to somebody who comes along and says, no, you've got to get baptized, and you've got to take communion, and you've got to go through, and Nope. <laughs> You know, so um, so yeah, Romans is is fantastic for arguing justification by faith alone, which is the the crucial, um, I think, the most direct error with Rome. Catholicism's got the same Jesus; they've got the same God, the Father. 
They got the Bible. Granted, they got some extra books in their Bible. But where the most immediate clash is, is justification by faith. And Romans, is, Romans and Galatians are probably the two clearest books on that topic. So, so I just get them reading and, point, and figuring out with whatever error or whatever truth they need to think about what book, what chapters most emphasize those truths. So for someone, it might be something different. Um, purgatory, you might deal with something else. I mean, in, in some sense, do you think about it this way? The New Testament is this. Four Gospels that tell you what happened, and the rest of it, aside from the book of Revelation, is commentary explaining the significance of those four Gospels. Here's the so what of Christ coming. And so different books are going to look at different so what's. You know, um, So Hebrews is going to say, so what? So don't go back to sacrifices that can never take away sins. You know, that's so what? Or Romans, so justification by faith. Or Ephesians, so stop acting like you're one body because Christ has taken down the dividing wall, so what? Or whatever. You know, I mean, those are the, in some senses, the New Testament is just the commentary on the four Gospels. One more thing? Hit it. So if I hear you right, it's... <clears throat> Find a common thread with the person, yeah. which hopefully is the text of the, of the Word of God, yeah. whether it's their Bible or yours, and then just start Bible studying with them. Once you, once you get on a common ground, yep. then you should be able to start reading and coming to yeah. common interpretations, which will start the process of, I call it a brainwash, but I mean, whatever you want to call it, yeah. but it'll start backing them into where they, they were meant to go. Right. And, and you find the common ground, especially with, I mean, this goes with anyone with any other belief system. You unpack them, what do they believe, and then find the common ground. Roman Catholics are going to say the Bible is the Word of God. So get their Bible open and start reading what it says. And we, we already agree on that. We already agree that the Bible is the Word of God. We don't agree that the Pope's Word is the Word of God, but we both agree the Bible is the Word of God. So we get common ground. Let's read it, see what it says, and use that common ground to your advantage. Um, and instead of don't, don't fight fights you don't need to fight. When it came down to my dad, I didn't need to vilify Catholicism. I didn't need to tear that down. We just needed to read John 3. Um, and, you know, and, and for someone else it might be different. I'm not saying that's the, you know, the paradigm for everybody, but don't fight needless fights. If you already agree on something, start there and work from there. We are uh, out of time, but uh, we'll pick this up next week. And um, God bless.